Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Pop Culture. I'm your host, Craig Absher. Today I'm speaking with Rachel Donaldson, author of I Hear America Singing, Folk Music and National Identity, out recently from Temple University Press. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really glad you could, uh, could find the time to talk with us. So you're trained as a historian. So far, so good, right? <laughs> yes. Exactly. And you're writing about folk music. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little interested how that came about. Um, well, you know, I've always been interested in music um, that has throughout my, my life. And uh, folk music was kind of um, a presence growing up. I kind of grew up on Kingston Trio songs as lullabies and such. And I um, also I'm from the Hudson Valley, which is like you know, the, the land of Pete Seeger. You know, so going to Clearwater festivals and, and things like that, particularly when I was a teenager. Um, so I had this interest, um, but then I kind of uh, put it, it was always just kind of a, a separate interest uh, when I started college. And um, I became an American studies major, and I was really interested in cultural history and labor history. And so when I was looking into grad schools, um, I specifically wanted to study Southern labor history, particularly Southern labor radicalism. And um, so all the programs that I applied to were in the South and, and had uh, strong Southern history programs. And it's kind of like when I started it, um, it, music came back as like, you know, well, what if I do this as a, as a scholarly pursuit? And um, the um, issues of music and um, labor history really, really come together through the folk music revival. And I mean, like uh, historians have talked about how Pete Seeger's one of his, you know, early missions was to create a singing labor movement. Um, so that's that's kind of how this project formed. Um, so it was always an interest, and then it became kind of a you know an academic pursuit about you know shortly after I started grad school. Okay, great. Uh, well, let's let's dive into the book then. You start with the 1930s, the folk mm-hmm. revival of the 1930s. So. Um, what what's well maybe a couple of things how how are you defining folk revival and mm-hmm. what is happening in the 1930s that brings about that revival those are really good questions uh first of all i define the folk music revival as a distinct movement that it really has a kind of clear you know relative beginning date and pretty much a clear end date um i'm not talking about popular interest in folk music because that of course predates the revival and it continues to this day um so i know that some people may read this and say no the folk music revival is still going on <laughs> um and, and i that's what i'm saying that it's not interest um, in folk music. Um, but I, I really see a clear mission as um, guiding the revivalists and kind of a clear set of ideas um, that come that guide their actions uh, through, this, through this time period. So the story begins in the 1930s, really coming out of con- cultural conditions of the Depression, the New Deal, and the left-wing popular front. Um, but before I actually even get into that, I, I start um, in the introduction of the book even further back, really kind of beginning more 
in the 19 teens in the World War I era. Um, because that's where I see the ideas that the revivalists use to guide their actions and their understandings of and presentations of folk music um, as really originating. So um, if it's okay, if I, I will start kind of at, at the beginning of World War I, um, kind of looking at the, um, the intellectual influences. So one of my arguments um, in this book is that uh, there is a long history of multiculturalism, that um, what we think of as multicultural education, you know, the, the celebration of cultural diversity and encouraging people of ethnic and racial minorities to take pride in their heritage actually has a much longer history than uh, what we think of as it kind of emerging from the um, identity politics of the 1960s and 70s. And so I see it really kind of beginning, and other scholars have as well, in the World War I era. Um, so during World War I, um, of course, you have this, this backlash against immigration, against um, you know, radicalism, you have this nativism, this uh, what uh, historians refer to as kind of 100% Americanism, this, this idea that, um, you know, you are fully, you know, embracing American culture or you're not truly one of us, that sort of thing. So um, in reaction to that, you have a, a group of um, public intellectuals and uh, scholars, really particularly coalescing in New York City, who argue that, no, actually, what makes America great is not that we all conform to everything, you know, the same culture and not this kind of melting pot notion that we all, you know, uh, are pretty much one in the same, but actually that we are a plurality of cultures and um, that immigrant groups have contributed um, significant cultural traditions. Um, you know, marginalized groups uh, have also made significant cultural con uh, contributions and that these should be protected and celebrated. Um, and one of the first people to do that was um, the scholar um, uh, Horace Kalin, uh, Elaine Locke, uh, who was you know, famous for the, in the Harlem Renaissance, also an advocate of cultural pluralism. Um, and so these, these um, um, intellectuals try to encourage uh, people of ethnic minorities and racial minorities to hold on to their cultures, you know, and their traditions and to not try to separate them. And, and they also said that to force, you know, immigrant groups and ethnic groups to renounce their traditions you know, could be really psychologically damaging. Um, uh, one of uh, Kalen's, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, one of his famous kind of lines is that, you know, you can choose many things, but you can't choose your grandfather. You know, you can't, can't choose where you, where you come from. Um, so that's really, that's the notion of cultural pluralism, you know, that we should, should protect these traditions and encourage people uh, from these groups to protect their own traditions. Um, and then another scholar, um, kind of in the similar groups, uh, was Randolph Bourne, and he's he's my personal favorite. Um, and uh, uh, Bourne argued um, he kind of created the notion of cosmopolitanism, and that's the idea that once again, you know, what makes America great is that we have all people from all these different, um, you know, uh, uh, nationalities coming together and you know contributing their their traditions. Um, and so he argued that cultural traditions, ethnic traditions, should be part of the basically the menu of cultural offerings. That, you know, if you are, you know, and you come from maybe a German background, but you are really interested in, 
you know, African-American spirituals. Great. You know, go for it. <laughs> you know, like use these spirituals and, you know, or use, you know, adopt these, not necessarily, um, you know, adopt as persona, but, you know, that you know, use the kind of offerings of cultural di- traditions in creating your own identity. Um, and so he really advocated the notion that, you know, what we should really promote in American identity is this kind of this weaving back and forth. Of, of different traditions. Now, he also was an elitist. <laughs> so he's like, you know, we're, we're taking the best of uh, European traditions and, and things like that. He wasn't kind of a, an equal opportunist, <laughs> opportunity person. Um, but yeah, but this idea that, you know, you're not restricted to where you come from, that uh, we need to protect different traditions because people should use them in, in their own, creating their own identity and thus becoming, you know, a more, you know, better rounded person. Um, so those are really the, the two kinds of intellectual influences. Um, another kind of uh, intellectual background is the regionalist movement. And this really emerges more in the 1920s. Um, and this is the kind of celebration of rural traditions. Um, rural traditions, also urban as well, although um, people really kind of focus on the celebration of, of the rural. And what regionalists did was they're like, you know what, in this era of mass culture and urban culture, a lot of the rural traditions that have sustained Americans in the past are being lost. And we need to celebrate these as well. And we need to protect these and make sure that these remain part of American culture. Um, so regionalists went out to the Southwest, to the Southeast, to, you know, New England, all over, um, and really trying to collect, um, examples of, of rural culture in particular. And so what I see the revival as being is kind of like the nexus of these two movements, the kind of urban cultural pluralism and cosmopolitanism and the predominantly rural regionalism. Um, but, uh, so, so yeah, so that's the, the background and, um, you have certain figures in this, in this period of the world war one in 1920s, um, who really kind of serve as the, I guess the, um, uh, forefathers and foremothers of, of, um, of the revival. And these are people like Howard Odom, who was a sociologist in, um, Chapel Hill and, uh, he collected particularly African-American music in Mississippi um, and argued, you know, not, not only for the protection of these traditions, but also the fact that, you know, uh, using culture to promote better race relations in the South. Um, you have people like uh, John Lomax, the father of Alan Lomax, who's collecting cowboy songs and uh, songs from penitentiaries. And he has not, not, not terribly progressive uh, social views. Um, but he's also, you know, his significance is, you know, going out and doing these field recordings and kind of collecting where people are. Um, and also saying that, hey, this is American folk culture. You know, we have a folk culture in America because that was another thing. People thought that, you know, folk culture was something of European background. Um, and so he's like, no, this these cowboy songs, this is this is America. This is these are our traditions. Um, and so, uh, and another um, big influence, um, Carl Sandburg, um, cause Carl Sandburg is also, um, you know, collecting songs in his, uh, and he publishes them in his book, um, American Song Bag. And, uh, so not only is he, though, does he write about these, but, uh, whenever he does a public lecture, he ends by singing these songs. So he's particularly important 
for a couple reasons. Um, one is that he's trying to encourage people to go out and, you know, not just, you know, treat these traditions as like museum pieces, but no, like make this a part of your own life. You know, you sing these songs, even if you're not from the country, even if you're not, if you have no familiarity with where these songs came from, you know, um, practice them as well. Um, and he's, he's also saying he, another um, major thing is that in American Songbag, he used, he publishes songs that have identifiable authors. Um, and, you know, even songs that are recent songs. And he says that these are folk songs. Um, and this is controversial because, you know, the understanding of, of folk music from kind of a scholarly, scholarly viewpoint is that, you know, these are songs that you can't pin down to a specific person, that they've been handed down over time. And, um, you know, and they're, they're kind of like this, you know, part of this, this, this ancient past sort of thing. And he's like, no, you know, you can have contemporary songs. You can have popular songs. Um, but they're talking about the American experience. And they're part of our folk canon. Um, so, uh, so those are the people who I really see as kind of forming the basis uh, for, for the revivalists. Um, so to get to your actual question <laughs> about the 1930s. Uh, so the revival really begins in the 30s because... Um, you have political and cultural circumstances that are conducive for this. So again, what are the revivalists trying to do? They're trying to protect cultural traditions. Um, music is what I'm focusing on. There's also elements of dance, of course, in folklore, but I'm really focusing on, on, on the musical aspect. And so, um, so they're trying to protect, protect these traditions. Now, um, what happens in the 30s is that you have a cultural shift that is really a response to the depression. If you think about culture in the 20s, um, you have a lot of, you know, the abstract art and you have art for art's sake. And, you know, if you think about, you know, great American writers, where are they going? They're fleeing, <laughs> they're fleeing the, the countryside and the small town, American, small, small towns of American life and, you know, heading to cities or, you know, heading to, to Europe. You know, there is this kind of a rejection of, of the American provinces. Well, in the 30s, you have kind of a reversal where people who had left start going back and really trying, and what they're trying to do is to, to understand how has the, the depression in particular affected the American experience? Like what, what is this do? What, how is this changing like American conditions and how can art help Americans to kind of weather the crisis uh, of the depression? Um, so there's this kind of return to the people and the celebration of the people. You know, historians often refer to the populism of, of the New Deal era. Um, so, and so folk uh, revivals really kind of fit into this, uh, where they're saying that, you know, folk music is the music of the people. Um, and so, you know, they, they have this kind of, um, this notion of folk music as, as a usable past. The fact that these were songs that helped sustain generations of people through hardships in the past could be used again to to help them through the present crisis. Um, so they're really kind of wrapped up in this celebration of the people that is so much a part of, of New Deal culture. The other thing is, and this is where I see kind of a, a connection between a lot of the revivalists, was uh, social progressivism. Um, some of them were New Deal liberals, some of them were members of the Communist Party. Some of them were sympathizers with the Communist Party. And some of them were just kind of, you know, hard to pin down. 
um, uh, politically, um, but they kind of, you know, were, were part of this, um, you know, this, this, at least the social progressivism of, of, of the 1930s. They're part of that. Now, of course, you have a conservative strain as well, but the revivalists really do fit into this kind of political progressivism. Um, and some of them, some of the key ones that I focus on are really part of um, popular front culture. And if um, uh, when everyone reads the book, <laughs> you'll see that I'm uh, clearly a, um, a fan of Michael Denning and his work on, um, on the popular front. And what the popular front was, was technically it was a Soviet mandate um, for communist parties uh, around the world. Um, and it comes out in around 1934, 1935. And what it is, is basically this directive for communist groups, and I'm, I'm simplifying this, uh, to kind of put the revolution against capitalism on hold because there was a new menace that they had to fight. And of course, that menace was fascism. Um, so it was like, okay, communists work with other political groups that are also, you know, anti-fascist. Well, in America, of course, the Roosevelt administration was anti-fascist. So uh, you have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, left-wing sympathizers and New Deal liberals kind of going back and forth. Um, now, out of this, like during the Popular Front, it officially lasts from 1935 to 1939, and then it kind of has a revival during World War II. But there are key cultural elements, and some of these elements include kind of a celebration of internationalism, a celebration of kind of international cultures, um, that sort of thing, um, and just internationalism in general. You also have a celebration of the working class. Um, and uh, Denning refers to this as kind of the laboring of American culture, where you have um, people from the working class become artists themselves. Um, you have working class themes entering into artistic products, um, and uh, and 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 work and, and you know artists become laborers themselves as well. And so, a lot of the folk revivalists were very interested in working class culture. Um, and particularly the, the music of working groups. Um, so they're really tied into this kind of laboring of American culture as well in the 1930s. So there's a whole confluence of uh, factors that kind of create, you know, the right kinds of circumstances for the revival to emerge. Um, so that's pretty much why it begins in the 30s. Right. And then out of the 30s, um, you, so you have this attention to working class culture, you have this attention to um, culture really that had been dismissed in the previous decade. And and that comes out of the 30s and into the Second World War. And, and that's that's obviously where you take the story next. And so having having gotten things moving in, in the 30s, how does how does the Second World War uh change what what started with the folk revival yeah so um it, there's this kind of going going back and forth with with certain groups um so it kind of goes back to the again the the popular front so um the popular front as i said ends in 1939 because that's when you have the uh nazi soviet pact where um the uh, germany agrees not to invade the soviet union and so it's kind of like so the the soviets drop you know, the popular front dropped. They're like, okay, you know, the fascists have agreed with us. Now, this throws the left into turmoil. Um, of course, you had the Stalin show trials even before that, where people are kind of skeptical about, about uh, communism. 
but particularly the, at the you know during this pact, you have a lot of sympathizers who were you know they're like we we were were anti-fascist. We're still anti-fascist. How how can we we give this up? Um, and one way you could kind of see this this kind of interim period is through the group the Almanac Singers, and this is where I use the Almanacs really to kind of explore this kind of backflipping that, um, uh, you know, sympathizers of, of, of the Communist Party have to go through. So um, if I kind of, before even getting to, the, 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 to World War II, you can kind of get this little narrow period in. Um, so the Almanac Singers, they were kind of like a super group of, uh, of folk people. You have uh, Woody Guthrie, um, uh, Pete Seeger, and um, uh, Lee Hayes, of course, Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes, who go on to uh, form the Weavers. And uh, Bess Lomax Haas, uh, who was Alan's sister. And um, uh, Agnes Sis Cunningham and, and, and uh, uh, Millard Lampell, a whole, whole group of people. So um, what their main mission is to use folk music, particularly to help in social activism. Um, to particularly, uh, they would sing on, on, you know, picket lines and, um, you know, promote civil rights. And so they use a lot of traditional songs and they also do something new where they uh, start writing new songs to support struggles. And so this is where you kind of get the beginning of the definition of folk music, including songs that are from the people, you know, kind of you know, songs that have changed over time and songs written for the people. That's a very much a left-wing definition. And that's really what the, uh, the almanacs do. So anyway, so what you have, uh, you know, in, um, you know, their uh, albums, um, one of their, their early albums is uh, Songs for John Doe. And what this album is, is a repudiation of the uh, Roosevelt administration for gearing up for war. Because this, of course, comes out after the Soviet Union ends the, the, the popular front, essentially. So you have all of these anti-war songs um, coming up from this group. And, uh, but, of course, they had been you know, anti-fascist beforehand. And uh, then what you get, of course, in, in 1941, when, oh, lo and behold, Germany invades the Soviet Union. <laughs> and um, So now you have, of course, the Soviet Union back on deck. Their next album is like, oh, sorry, sorry, FDR. We had some differences in the past, but now again, we're all you know ready to to fight the fascist menace. Um, so that's why you have kind of, and then of course we're technically on the same side as the Soviet Union, you know, during World War II, although we didn't really trust them. Um, and so uh, you have kind of like this this re- uni- unification again uh, uh, between the left and uh, the the New Deal. And so during World War II, what you have is uh, revivalists really using music to promote, for, for wartime propaganda, essentially. Um, so you have Alan Lomax, who's working for the Office of War Information, um, Sarah Gertrude Knott, who is the director of the National Folk Festival, and she really incorporates kind of patriotic and, and pro-war um, messages in, in her program as well. And so... But what's interesting during this period is the kind of propaganda that they're promoting. So if you think back to World War One, what's the what's the propaganda like there? It's it's you know xenophobic, one hundred percent Americanism. Well, during World War Two, you get kind of a, a celebration of diversity. 
you know, because what does the, you know, what has to happen is you have to have all of these different groups kind of coming together to support the war. And so um, you have this kind of promotion of what, uh, what makes America great is, is, is our, or, you know, our, our differences. And this is a form of civic nationalism, this notion that, yes, we have all of these different cultural traditions, um, ethnic traditions, but what makes us all Americans is that we believe in the same civic ideals. We believe in democracy. You know, we, be, you know, we believe in the Constitution. So it's this civic nationalism is this kind of idea that, you know, as long as you believe in these American principles, then, you know, you can practice whatever, you know, tradi- cultural traditions that, that you want. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so this civic nationalism is, is also a response to the kind of racial nationalism of, you know, Nazi Germany. You know, and this idea that, you know, that that there is this racial type that is the ideal citizen. So, of course, you know, the allied powers are going to be like, no, what, you know, we don't have this racial type. We, you know, you can be any race, but, you know, we, as long as you believe in these principles. Now, again, this is propaganda. So this is, of course, a very idealized view. Um, uh, is there, are we practicing civil rights? No. Um, but it's no coincidence that really the modern phase of the civil rights movement emerges during this era. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, so back to the, the revivalists. So they're, they're really kind of promoting this, um, this kind of a celebration of diversity and the celebration of democracy um, during World War II. Um, now, sometimes they get into to conflicts with each other. Um, for instance, you have uh, Abel Mirapol, who wrote under the pen name Lewis Allen. Now, he's most, probably most famous for uh, writing Strange Fruit. Um, and he also wrote the song, The House I Live In. And uh, if any uh, people may be familiar, this was turned into like a 10 minute film with um, Frank Sinatra. Um, but The House I Live In is this kind of the epitome of um, this kind of pro-diversity or, you know, kind of message, you know, this, this, this civic, the celebration of civic nationalism. And, uh, and he wasn't, even though he was a songwriter, he's in the same circles as many of the, the left-wing revivalists of New York City. And so in some of the, the, the journals, you know, he got, he, he got kind of uh, uh, lambasted, you know, the fact that he, you know, people are like, no, this is not like, you know, uh, America does not respect civil rights as much, you know, you know, that, as, as we should and things, you know, this is not the house that many people in America live in. But again, it's, it's an idealized view. Um, and you could also see uh, "Ballad for Americans" um, is is also um, the that was written by um, uh, Earl, uh, oh no now I'm trying Earl uh, Robinson. Um, so uh, that again, like this is part of the the mainstream culture of the the kind of pre right on the cusp of, of World War II, but uh, Robinson is part, you know, he's in these same circles as many of these kind of, these folk revivalists. Um, so for instance, he also uh, did another cantata about um, uh, the Lonesome Train, um, about Lincoln, the, the, the casket carrying Lincoln, you know, traveling through the country and all the different types of Americans. And, and he wrote that with Millard Lampell, who was a member of the Almanac Singers. So, all, you know, this is just to go to to show that a lot of these revivalists are working, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a diffuse group, um, but they really are re- wrapped up in this kind of uh, the type of propaganda that really came to define World War II. Now, there is a potential problem here 
Um, because with civic nationalism, if you if you say that you know you have certain kinds of ideals that define America, well, that can also extend to economic ideals. Like, oh, well, you have to be, believe in free enterprise to be an American, and if you don't, then you're not American. So um, this really kind of not necessarily sets the stage for the Red Scare, but you know it, it could go in a direction that it does in fact end up going uh, by the by the end of the decade. Right. Now, it's interesting when you were talking about the propaganda during the war, I think uh, the image that comes to mind for me is the the fantasy army troops uh, units that, that were fully integrated in spite of the fact that, of course, the army units were not at all yeah. integrated. But many of the films, in order to sort of portray the same thing that you're talking about, needed needed to put that forward. Look, this... It, it is somehow this fantasy that this African-American soldier was serving right next to this white soldier, and that's who we are, because that's, after all, what we're fighting for. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's interesting that you see the same thing in, in music. Um, and, and as you are moving into the 50s, I think that's uh, the decade that most of us, we look back and we think, well, if we're going to have these things, these sort of... Uh, in some ways, counterculture movements, how's that going to play through the 50s? Uh, <laughs> right. It's like, let's see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm part of a kind of a cohort of historians who really look at the, the 1950s not as kind of like the dark ages of <laughs> political activism, you know, that make way for the renaissance of the 1960s, um, but actually that there are clear connections. Um, so um, even before now... Even before getting to the actual 50s, of course, the, the Red Scare begins even beforehand. So throughout the 1940s, you have this kind of rightward trek of, of American culture and American society, really kind of away from New Deal liberalism. Now, FDR kind of sets the stage for this, where, you know, when he says that, you know, he's, you know, Dr. New Deal has turned into Dr. Win the War. Um, so a lot of the kind of programs like the WPA programs, all the art programs, they're the first to go. I mean, they actually, some like the Federal Theater Project ends even before the 30s. I think it's in 38. Um, so anyway, so the, as the country is gradually moving, now you have, it's, it's, the 40s are a really interesting time because as everything is kind of moving rightward, you have this blip um, in 1945, from 1945 to 1946, where you have a series of wildcat strikes that hit almost every kind of industrial sector and, and service sector as well. Um, and so people on the left were like, yes, this is it. This is our labor movement. Um, so during the same period, uh, the, many of the people who were members of the Almanacs, um, but particularly uh, Pete Seeger and uh, Lee Hayes, they uh, have a meeting in Pete Seeger's apartment. And they're like, you know what we need to do is that we need to get back to the kind of the mission of the Almanacs the idea of using folk music, because they're all fans of folk music, um, to put, help this labor activism and, you know, help in pushing for civil rights and, and all of these kind of social causes that we, we still believe in. Um, so this is this. So they formed the group People's Songs and People's Songs is uh, unlike the Almanacs, not, it's not just one group, but it has chapters kind of all over the country, mostly in urban areas. Um, and it's particularly strong in, of course, New York. Of a branch in Chicago and um, L.A. Um, and, uh, and so what they do is that they, they try to collect songs, um, either 
traditional folk songs, um, traditional folk songs that have had their words changed um, to address contemporary concerns and new songs written about, you know, contemporary issues that people could sing on picket lines and people can use and use in their struggles. So unfortunately, this was a, a, you know, kind of a, it was a very short-lived piece in, in the in the 1940s while this this kind of a, a resurgence of activism. Um, and so people's songs, you know, were they, oh, and they, uh, they also, they disseminated all this music through a magazine, um, you know, it's very kind of low production quality, but um, they called the People's Songs Bulletin. Um, and so the one kind of shining hope they had uh, politically was the Henry Wallace campaign of 1948. Um, and so the, and Wallace was running on the Progressive Party. Well, he was, he did not take, he was somewhat sympathetic to, to communism, uh, you know, advocated civil rights, was pro-labor, all of the things that uh, the revivalists and people's songs kind of continued to believe in. So they, people's songs put all of practically all of their money and their effort into the Wallace campaign. Pete Seeger goes on tour with him playing his banjo. Uh, Alan Lomax writes songs. He wrote a very unfortunate song called The Magic Ballad, a ballad that was uh, not not lyrically very good, um, but trying to, of course, get, get get this message out. Well, Wallace loses, like, abysmally at the polls. He came in fourth. He came out even behind uh, Strom Thurmond, who is the, the Dixiecrat candidate. So this really kind of causes people's songs to fold. Um, and they re- close their doors in uh, 49. Um, so this would seem kind of seem like the end. And, and chronologically, it's kind of fitting. It's right before, you know, the 1950s. Um, but the thing is that they continue their efforts. Um, Maybe not as a group, but you know, as a as a collective group, but you know, through through various outlets. Um, and so, through the 1950s, what you have is people, um, these revivalists, kind of operating somewhat below the political radar, but really kind of keeping up their efforts. So you can really trace this through, for instance, through Pete Seeger. Well, after People's Songs, Pete Seeger uh, forms the, um, the Weavers with uh, Fred Hellerman. Lee Hayes and Martin Gilbert. Now, on the surface, they don't seem political at all. Um, and, you know, in fact, they, they, you know, even they don't, they're a folk group or they're singing folk songs, but they're, you know, dressing up. And uh, when they start recording for Decca Records, they have, you know, a professional orchestra in the background. And so a lot of the kind of staunch folk people are like, this is not folk music. Um, but what they're doing is that they're getting this music, the music of Woody Guthrie, the music of Lead Belly, out to a popular audience. So they make some compromises, um, in, particularly in terms of the presentation, but they're, they're trying to, they're, you know, uh, an important channel for, for this music. Um, and they also, you know, in certain ways can get some, uh, a political message out. For instance, they had a, um, a Christmas song that says the word, sings the word peace in several different languages. And it's basically like, no matter what your language is, you know, um, it all means the same thing. That was a very controversial statement um, because those people who particularly were promoting peace or, you know, trying to end the kind of the, the or curtail the, the weapons growth on the arms race 
were seen as communists, and many of them kind of were. <laughs> so, uh, so even just kind of promoting this message of peace and this climate was dangerous. Um, and they ended up because of their political backgrounds, you know, they, they lost their, uh, oh, they were, um, Pete Seeger in particular was mentioned in this, uh, publication called Red Channels, which was a list of, um, all people in the entertainment industry who were suspected communists. And so that really killed the Weavers. Um, and so, um, but Pete Seeger continues. I mean, he, continues to sing at, um, uh, in schools, in progressive schools, in children's camps and things like that. And so he's really kind of introducing a new generation to this uh, kind of music and the ideals behind it. Um, you have other outlets like um, the magazine Sing Out. Um, and Sing Out, when it starts in 1950, um, it's uh, very, very left-wing, um, but also very strongly pro-civil rights, and actually, this is one of the things I, I love about them is that um, they promote in this magazine, they promote uh, choruses, community choruses as like kind of a way to get this message out and also to kind of unite people and also having them you know, practice, practice these traditions. But they were like they were really strong advocates of interracial community groups. And they're like, you know, and you but not only should they be interracial, but you shouldn't these groups shouldn't have like kind of a, a racially defined roles. So they're like, don't have African-Americans just sing African-American spirituals, you know, actually have, you know, African-Americans lead when you sing Anglo ballads. Um, and so that really kind of, you know, exemplifies the kind of cosmopolitan attitude. Um, but yeah, so they're, you know, they're railing against McCarthyism. Um, they're railing against the kind of the, the censuring of, of political um, uh, uh, activism in the 1950s. Um, and so, uh, so they're really, you know, this is a strong, this is a very strong outlet. Are a lot of people reading, um, sing out? No, <laughs> but the fact that it existed, you know, and that they are, um, you know, really kind of providing a conduit from the people's songs era through, through the 1950s. Um, and, uh, Folkways Records is another one. Folkways Records begins in 1949 and, uh, Moses Ash was the, the uh, head of it, um, and uh, and he is really kind of promoting these ideas of of, of civil rights and pro diversity as well um, through albums that he is recording, and he records a lot of um, African American history albums as well, um, and and albums geared specifically towards schools um, that promote this kind of. Um, pro-democracy, pro-diversity, pro-civil rights message. Um, and so what this kind of goes to show is that, you know, there is political dissent in the 60s, and there's these clear ties that go into, um, into sorry, in the 1950s that, that go into the 1960s. Um, you know, so, uh, so yeah, the, the 50s was not like the kind of end of, of activism as it had been treated. The other thing, uh, and this may seem somewhat minor, is that um, these people, the, the ones that I'm, I'm really focusing on, particularly in this chapter, um, are coming at it from a very a left-wing perspective. Uh, one of the kind of uh, famous history books on this is uh, Maurice Isserman's If I Had a Hammer. If I Had a Hammer, of course, written by Lee Hayes and, and Pete Seeger. Um, but uh, he really, um, so he looks at political activists in the, in the 1950s, again, to show that, hey, you know, activism was still around. But it is a lot to disconnect them from the left. 
um, where he looks at, you know, that you have pacifists or you have, uh, you know, various groups, but they are not at all connected to what had been the Communist Party or they had not, you know, been sympathizers or, or whatever. Um, but I'm like, no, these, these people, the ones that I'm focusing on, are very much from the left. They supported the Communist Party when they believed the Communist Party was advocating for the same ideals that they were. And they left the party when they believed that it wasn't. I mean, Erwin Silver doesn't leave until 1957. Um, so uh, so that's one of the things that I'm, I'm not shying away from the fact these people are, these are clearly on the left. Then um, I, I think you get to the point where we would assume, oh, that's... For many people, I, I think they do assume that the folk revival is a product of the '60s, and so just the fact that you, there's this background now and that this this um, not just backstory, but this this chronology that goes way back to the '30s, and then as you point out, even before, I think help under, helps us understand what we assume is the folk revival of the sixties, because that's when oh, some of these these obvious constraints, some of these the things that were in many ways, uh, forcing some of the artists, some of the thinkers behind the movement to tone down the leftism, mm -hmm. all of a sudden that starts to dissipate in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, so the, um, in the 1960s, well, the folk boom is kind of like what, what uh, referred to the, the period of the 60s when folk music was all the rage um, between the end of the kind of end of the 1950s rock and roll rebellion and before the British invasion. Um, and this really starts in 1958 with um, the Kingston Trio's um, uh, release of Tom Dooley. Um, and so folk music is popular culture. Um, and, uh, and so um, a lot of the revivalists are like, well, what do we do? <laughs> because yes, we wanted to get, you know, this music into 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 popular culture, but whoa, now it is not at all what we had intended. You know, this is this is not what what we had wanted. Um, so it's the kind of throughout the 60s is this question of how do we um, maintain our political message, you know, maintain music that is good, <laughs> that they considered good, and you know, kind of make sure that this is still still part part of culture. And so during this period, you have, um, you know, of course, you have the start of things like the Newport Folk Festival. And the Newport, Newport Folk Festival um, uh, actually started in, in, in 50, 58, I think, um, went through a hiatus in the early 60s and then and reemerged. And of course, Pete Seeger is one of these, these people um, who are, are really active in, in the um, uh, Newport Folk Festival. And what they try to do is make sure that um, traditional musicians are represented as much as kind of contemporary popular uh, musicians as well. Um, and so there, this is kind of um, one of the things that's also going on in this time period is this kind of this, this cultural conservation um, where you have a reaction against the kind of popular, the folk boom by really this, this celebrating um, traditional musicians. And so you have a lot of particularly young people, um, people like, uh, um, Mike Seeger, Pete Seeger's brother, who is a member of the New Lost uh, City Ramblers, who study old recordings painstakingly in order to make sure that they, you know, they have as authentic a sound as, as possible. And they also have concerts of, of traditional musicians. This is also during the kind of the blues uh, revival where people are trying to go out and find traditional blues musicians as well. So there's, culturally speaking, there is this balancing act 
that's happening during this period of, of making sure that, you know, people understand the content behind the music and people, you know, respect the, the tradition bearers, essentially. Um, and that continues on through the 1970s. And then there's also this kind of revival of, okay, you have this kind of resurgence of political activism. How can we use folk music to, again, um, uh, help facilitate this? Um, so uh, one of the things that starts uh, in um, 1962 is a magazine called uh, Broadside. And Broadside is very much like the People's Songs Bulletin. In fact, it was started by Agnes Cunningham, who belonged to you know, People's Songs and uh, the Almanac um, Singers, and her husband, Gordon Friesen. And so what happens with that, this magazine is that you have a kind of a, a collection of young folk singers, uh, quote unquote, who are using kind of the same thing like the Almanac Singers, music to promote certain you know, causes. Bill Oaks is a major part of this group. Um, and and uh, Bob Dylan becomes part of this as well. You know, he publishes songs like uh, Talking John Birch Blues in, in Broadside. And so Broadside's entire mission is the idea of, you know, using traditional songs and using songs written for the people um, to promote this activism. So it becomes a major outlet for young musicians of the of the new left generation who are interested in folk music and interested in 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 continuing on this mission, um, so you have a lot of different strains going on in the 1960s between these kind of political groups, these these um, uh, cultural uh, uh, groups that are trying cultural preservationist groups. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's division even between them where the cultural, um, groups, some of them are really reject the idea of politicizing folk music. Uh, they kind of have this purist approach. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so there, there's the kind of this tension growing in the 1960s as well as like, what should, should folk music be used for political purposes? Should it be just kept pure? That sort of thing. Um, and so it really comes to a breaking point by the end of the decade when you have um, the kind of activism that comes to define the new left um, by post-1968 is really kind of a rejection of American principles. It's a rejection of progressivism. You know, this kind of, uh, you know, this idea that the, the system is so corrupt, that America is so corrupt, it can't be reformed. And throughout the revival, um, even, you know, the, the political radical revivalists, they're reformers. They're like, you know, you have good ideas. You have these ideas of, of civil liberties and, and civil rights, that sort of thing, that they're part of this kind of American political heritage. We just have to make sure that the nation practices what it preaches, essentially. So all the movements that they were involved in were pretty much reform movements that don't have a place anymore in the kind of radicalism of the 1960s. And so that's really one of the reasons why I argue that the revival itself ends in the 60s, because the people who had been sustaining it throughout all these years no longer have a place in the kind of the, the left-wing climate of the 1960s. And even those who were liberal, who weren't even leftists, don't have a place in this, you know, where, you know, the, the idea of patriotism is really kind of, um, you know, part of conservative groups. And, and they don't really, and, and in popular culture, you know, folk music is kind of associated <laughs> with, with kind of more progressive forces. And so these, these people just don't have outlets anymore. And so they kind of leave 
the the message of the or the you know the the main mission of the revival of using folk music to change America as a whole. Um, some go into special causes. This is when Pete Seeger becomes a strong environmentalist. Um, uh, Alan Lomax becomes very um, involved in uh, promoting um, uh, uh, celebration of, of Black cultural identity. Um, and so um, he gets more engaged in those projects. Um, and, um, and others just kind of, you know, kind of fall by the wayside. Um, so that's why the revival as a movement kind of ends in the sixties, but there is a resurgence and the epilogue to this really is the, um, Smithsonian Festival of American Folklife, now called the Folklife Festival. And that actually started in, um, 67, 68. And this festival really, particularly in the seventies, kind of was like the last, Center for activity of the idea of of using folk traditions to um, you know promote this idea of you know we celebrate diversity. Uh, look at all these traditions that are part of our state local heritages and our our national heritage and our international heritage. Um, so and and this kind of and it also has a strong kind of cultural preservationist bent because of course the people who are presenting these traditions are tradition bearers, um, and the whole mo- notion was the idea that that these tradition bearers would teach their their cultural traditions uh, directly to an audience um so after each performance you know the um uh uh, gates separate or not gates the ropes separating the performers would be lowered so that people can kind of intermingle that sort of thing so it's this notion in this festival the idea of giving voice to um to underrepresented people um, and having them teach about teach a wider public about their own traditions, um, and it was this notion of of giving voice that had been very prominent throughout the revival, um, really even going back to the 30s, um, where um, you know through through things like Alan Lomax had a series of radio shows that featured people like Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie and um, another like you know lesser known folk musicians singing and teaching about their traditions to, you know, school children or to adults through an adult um, uh, radio show. So that notion, um, that idea of giving voice that had, is so strong in multiculturalism, you know, is, is key in the um, uh, Folklife Festival and had been really kind of a key aspect of, of the revival. So the ideas of the revival continue to kind of, you know, be manifested in different ways, even though the revival as a cultural movement, as a social movement, had ended. Excellent. Yeah. And it does bring us right back where we started in the 30s with that that same idea of giving voice to all these different groups. Um, that No, it's it's really interesting. And I and I like that, that it continues into the 70s, but I have a very non-academic question to ask you as we sort of wrap things up, because I definitely have, have taken enough of your time. Oh, no. I'm, I'm, I'm almost, it's, <laughs> I like the idea of uh, author's playlist, uh, given that, you know, you're writing about music, you're writing about the history of music as, as mm-hmm. that plays up against um, the history of the United States. So what kind of music do you listen to? Oh, oh, I wish we had like another like <laughs> 20 minutes. A lot, um, a lot of, a lot of different types. Uh, I've, I've, um, I've been on a big built to spill kick right now. <laughs> so, right, um, they, they are back. <laughs> they never went away. <laughs> but um, you know, it, that's um, if, if I think about music, that you know, I was one thing, and this is actually going into also why did I get started on this project 
When I was in high school, the um, uh, Anthology of American Folk Music was released on CD. Uh, the Anthology of American Folk Music was first released on Folkways Records, and it came out in 1952. This becomes like the document. It's all just uh, recordings from commercial recordings from the 20s and 30s um, that, um, you know, that the uh, um, were selected because they were weird. And because they were, they, they in fact, uh, Griel Marcus uh, refers to the recordings as like the old weird America. But people like the, particularly the like the young kind of uh, generation to emerge in, in the 1950s and early 1960s loved this. And, uh, and I was working in a record store when this came out. And I think this was like my big birthday present uh, that year. And I loved it. <laughs> this is what really got me started. Um, you know, this, this type of music. I mean, for instance, one of the, the songs is um, Henry Thomas's Fishing Blues which is the happiest song. It's just about catfishing. I, you know, it could be about something else, but I'm going to just say that it's about fishing. And uh, that was my wedding processional song. <laughs> so, uh, so in terms of the, the music that I've at, that, uh, that are part of this, part of this project, really the Aethology of American folk music got, got me started on this. No, that's great. And, and part of why I ask is, is not to pry into your playlist, but <laughs> to, it, it, there is a recent, revival and interest in traditional music forms and you see it all across popular music and 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 i have to say that's that's my initial interest in your project was wait how does this connect with even something like alt country and how does you know what's going on there and 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 are the same i mean and is there something something political in that music and and that's 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 something i'm interested in so that's that that's what drew me to your book because i do think that in the same way that people in the thirties were looking for something authentic, something real, something that would connect them to the American past that we wanted. It, it does raise question about a, a lot of questions about a lot of things that are happening in popular music now that, that are fascinating. And I think, yeah. I think that your book really sets, sets up um, an investigation of that. Oh, good. When, when it, you know, bringing, thinking about that, like looking at the early nineties, like uncle Tupelo, I'm a big fan of uncle Tupelo and stuff. Right. I mean, yeah, those kind of revival. Um, I had taught an American studies class in the past that uses, um, uh, uh music to understand kind of political activism from the thirties through the nineties. And I end the course, of course I begin with Woody Guthrie and stuff, but I end the course, uh, with, um, the group anti-flags song. Uh, it's a punk group. Uh, this machine kills fascists. Which was the sign, of course, the sticker, whatever that that Woody Guthrie had on on his guitar. So I'm like, if you want to see full circle, <laughs> you, right. know, you can you can hear it in that song. So everyone, check out this machine kills fascists. <laughs> okay, excellent. I think I, I think we've now officially come full circle. I think we in the <laughs> '70s I thought we came full circle, but no, now now we have. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Rachel. Uh, I really do appreciate your your making the time to talk talk with us. Oh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for this opportunity. My pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in Pop Culture, and this is your host, Craig Absher, signing off.